It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Wednesday, May 19th, 2010. All right, put your thinking caps on. Folks, this is not an easy episode to listen to, but you need to listen to it. And if you don't get it the first time, listen to it again. And if you don't get it the second time, listen to it a third time. You need to understand what is being said in this edition of Fighting for the Faith. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ. And this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which is to help you to think biblically, to help you to think critically, and to compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. Today's edition of Fighting for the Faith, like I just said, is complicated. I apologize that it's complicated, but I don't apologize. And if it's hard to understand, I well, you're just going to have to apply yourself. It You need to understand what it is that I am saying and what my guest today on Fighting for the Faith is saying, what the two of us together are talking about. My guest today on Fighting for the Faith is Bob DeWay from Twin City Fellowship. Just got done recording the uh, my interview with him, and we'll be playing that for you here. And we're going to be talking about the parallels between emergent postmodernity and ideological fascism. Yeah, I, I'm willing to stick, stick my neck out on this one. Why? Because I've done the study and I know what I'm saying is true. And if you want to get a primer on this, you need to get a copy of the book Modern Fascism, Modern Fascism by Gene Edward Veith. And if you don't have a copy of it, you if you go to fightingforthefaith.com, you'll see an icon of it. If you go to piratechristianradio.com, you'll see an icon with a with a with a link that says click here to purchase it. You need to get a copy of this book and read it and understand it and know what we're facing here because these emergent ideas, these postmodern ideas are not new. In fact, they're rather old. They've been around for quite a while. And on top of it, these ideas have consequences. And these ideas truly are the underpinnings of what fascism was. You're sitting there going, man, Chris, that's kind of, yeah, I understand. It's, it's heavy. It's big. And you, you can't believe what I'm saying. It's true, though. What I'm telling you is the God's honest truth. If you disagree with me, get your books ready to quote and prove me wrong because I've done my homework. I'm working on a paper on this one, and it's long, okay? I've got quotes. My bibliography is over 110 books long at this point. I know what I'm talking about. So my guest today is uh, Pastor Bob DeWay, and uh, the best way I can just basically say is this. Make yourself comfortable. Don't, if you're, if you're listening live, the podcast will be up uh, soon. Download the podcast and listen again if you don't track with anything. You can stop it. You can rewind it. You've got to apply yourself and make sure you understand what we're talking about. And if you want the bigger details and you haven't read the book, get Gene Edward Vies' book, Modern Fascism. Again, a link will be provided for you at fightingforthefaith.com as well as Pirate Christian Radio. You need to read this book. So without any further ado, here is my interview uh, earlier from earlier today with Pastor Bob DeWay. 
On the phone, I have Bob DeWay from uh, Twin City Fellowship in uh, Minneapolis, Minnesota. And uh, we have got a, let's, for lack of a better way of putting it, we have a very controversial and um, hard-to-swallow topic that we want to talk about today at fight, on Fighting for the Faith. And that's the connection between the philosophy that underpins the emergent church and the philosophy that drove fascism. Now, fascism has different types in which it flies, but if you truly understand what fascism is and its philosophical underpinnings, uh, then you will understand the true nature and the true danger that the emergent church uh, poses uh, to uh, the, 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 the church of Jesus Christ here on earth. Bob, thanks for coming on the program. It's great to be here. Okay, so people are going to think that you and I are, uh, we, we've obviously had too much Kool-Aid to drink, <laughs> uh, that maybe our studies have melted our brains. Um, this is quite, what we're talking about today on the program, I think is probably one of the most important topics I've ever discussed here on the air. And I've, I've alluded to it and discussed it in part on the program before, but I thought it was important to bring somebody else on the program who sees the same things I do, because you have a fantastic book on the emergent church uh, entitled Undefining Christianity. And uh, you and I have attended uh, uh, conferences before from the emergent church, and you and I kind of have some of the same experiences. Um, how did you come to the same conclusion I did? <laughs> well, I think... Uh, the research, and uh, some of what you shared with me from this uh, Gene Edward Veith, his book called Modern Fascism, and there's a theological journal article, and I knew before I read these things that fascism was based on neo-paganism, uh-huh. and this um, pagan inclination to be attached to nature and to the pre-modern Germanic tribal outlook on life right but this more more recent research really nailed it down right what i'm finding in my research by the way when i when i first read read gene veith's book um i couldn't put it down um neither could i it was one of those things where i couldn't believe the dots that were being connected and how this all made sense and um this is going to sound ridiculous and obsessive on my part but i've since have purchased close to about a hundred different books uh, that pertain to fascism, irrational philosophy, and uh, basically uh, stuff that has to do with what uh, Carla Puva in her uh, journal article refers to as the Volkish milieu. A milieu is an environment. And uh, so in the years 1919 to 1933, uh, Hitler comes to power, by the way, in January of 1933, there was an intellectual conversation that was taking place in Europe. It wasn't just in Germany. It was it was a conversation that was taking place in Italy. It was taking uh, place in France. It was taking place in Spain. And um, out of this, what the underpinnings of it was um, kind of a cocktail between existentialism, evolutionary theory, the Hegelian dialectic, and this this kind of potent ingredient that was new into the mix. And that is irrational philosophy. This is philosophy itself that attacks rational thought itself and tries to get beyond logic and thinking and reason and into the realm of the subjective and the intuitive. And um, in, in, in fact, Martin Heidegger in uh, what, uh, what the, the German irrational philosopher 
uh, was the one who created deconstructionism. Yeah, it's very interesting, and it also springs out of Romanticism. Okay, explain that. Well, there was a reaction against the Enlightenment and against rationality and against the idea that modern man could understand the world that he lived in by study and you know, creating categories and understanding things scientifically, where Romanticism says that intuitive feelings and so on are just as valid as rational thought. Okay, so, so in, yeah, so it's there's this romantic element that you know that's you know, I think Romanticism is a reaction against uh, the Enlightenment, and then you know, and it was bolstered at least in the church by the fact that uh, you know you have uh, Darwin's theory of evolution being published, and it kind of smashes. Uh, this idea that somehow truth uh, can, you know, that the science is going to you know, lead us to God, and, and it destroys all notions of that. And the, ch- the church's reaction is a few things. Uh, you know, you get uh, Nietzsche and his, uh, you know, Christian atheism, if you can even call it that, is the idea that God is dead and his attack against that. You've got Soren Kierkegaard and his, you know, first attempt at existentialism. And so something crazy happens in the in the middle of the 19th century, and it lays the philosophical groundwork uh, in Romanticism and then leading to irrational philosophy, where man turns his thoughts in such a way that he ends up attacking thought itself. Yeah, and that I talk about that in my book, and I use Francis Schaeffer, who wrote against this sort of stuff back in the 1968. The idea would be that you detach Christianity from the logical relationship of the Bible as God's words that could be understood, and God's actions that actually happen in time and space that are applicable to us and bind us morally, to the transcendent God mm-hmm. who has spoken. Right. Okay. So you attack that idea in several different ways, the Romanticism being one and neo-Orthodox theology being another, where you suggest that language about God is really meaningless, it's just equivocation, mm-hmm. and you have to take a blind leap of faith, and faith becomes detached from the God who has spoken. Right. Now, just so you, people understand, you and I are not modernists, but we do believe. We I hold to the correspondence uh, idea of truth. You know, you know, basically, truth is what how things really are. You know, uh, if, get, to just to give a basic example, um, if somebody were to put out the uh, the truth claim that uh, the moon is made out of green cheese. The, I believe that the way you would discover whether or not that statement is true or false is by you know sending a spaceship to the moon, grabbing some moon dust, and then testing whether or not uh, moon dust tastes good on a salad. <laughs> yeah, the correspondent theory of truth, which is called a theory by the postmodern theologians and emergent people because they want to debunk it. Uh huh. It really just says that statement is true if and only if it corresponds to the way things really are. Right. So, for example, in Christianity, Paul claims that Jesus Christ really was bodily raised from the dead on the third day and appeared to many witnesses. Right. And so that statement is true if and only if Jesus Christ really existed, really was raised from the dead, and really did appear to the witnesses. That's. It's not just a theory. It's the only way 
our human rationality can deal with the real world that God created and that God put us in. Exactly. And if, and Paul even goes on to say that if Christ is not raised, then we should be pitied. And, yeah, that, you, know, cool. you know, and it, we're basically found out to be liars about God. And so, I mean, this is not a, a concept that's foreign to humanity. I mean, it's pretty much the concept of truth that we all grow up with as children. Yes, and as a matter of fact, um, uh, on, on our radio show, the Critical Issues Commentary, we're doing a series based on the book that I wrote on this. And the w- latest chapter we're in, I go back into the Garden of Eden and point out that you need <laughs> such things as, quote, the correspondence theory of truth to even function and to even decide whether Eve was right or wrong to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Because mm-hmm. God said if you eat of it, you die. The serpents denied that. And you have to be able to distinguish between what God said, what reality is, and what the consequences will be if or if not you eat. And Satan challenged all of that and started a conversation. Right. I would say Satan... Truth becomes subjective then. Right. Satan was the first true deconstructionist because he goes right after the language that God... the words that God spoke and challenges their meaning. Exactly. So that's a great point, Chris. I hadn't thought of it that way, but I love what you said. Satan is the first deconstructionist. Right. (laughs) So we're not just being melodramatic. No, no. Dear listeners, this is real. Uh, We heard this stuff talked about at a conference that the two of us attended, and this is what's being taught to many of your children and grandchildren and nieces and nephews in colleges and universities including Christian ones, all over the United States. Right. Now, real quick, in my studies of what fascism is and what and what it was, by the way, I think it's back. I think we're, you know, in fact, a lot of people are out there t- talking about how s- some elements in, in the government are Marxist. But what people don't understand is that Marxism actually has a couple of different brands. And so there's a modernist brand to Marxism, and I would even argue there's a postmodernist brand to Marxism. And when we, if you, to give you an example of the modernist brand of Marxism, you would look at the former Soviet Union. That was truly a modernist state. It was truly a modernist government. It was atheistic. It wasn't involved in these word games regarding truth. It was just hardline humanistic in, in its approach and to it, the way it governed. However, fascism, I think, is postmodern Marxism. And you people, you, you all need to understand that fascism is a political religion. There is no separation of church and state in a fascist way of looking at the world. And there's certain themes that pop up in fascism that don't pop up in modernist Marxism. For instance, um, in, in talking about fascism, there is this obsession with and a hatred towards the transcendent and this idea that uh, that there's transcendent truths that are true for everybody everywhere and that we're all going to be held accountable to. And what Gene Veith brings up in his book, Modern Fascism, is that this is actually the underlying reason why the Nazi party, why the, the fascists in, in Germany were so strongly anti-Semitic. It wasn't just because they didn't like Jews. They didn't like the Jewish God and his transcendent moral truths. Yes, absolutely. I just re-read the chapter where he's talking about 
how uh, Hitler and the fascists in Germany were able to make the church useful for them. Mm-hmm. And the one thing they, they had to do to do that was remove its Jewish elements. Right. And so some even advocated getting rid of the Old Testament, and they they had to create a Christianity that was devoid of a transcendent monotheistic God who spoke uh, true morals that are binding on all people. That's what had to go. Right, and there and uh, this kind of comes to a head in uh, in uh, a gentleman by the name of Martin Clogus. And Martin Clogus is the, kind of the founder of what became known as German Christianity during yep. the Volkish period. And German Christianity, funny enough, really looks like uh, Brian McLaren's new kind of Christianity. It's a, it's a Christianity gutted of all transcendent truth and is really focused in on solving political problems and making the world a better place. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, as I said, I just finished rereading that chapter. I'm going through that book for a second time. Um, the alternative, the the resistance to the German Christianity, which was imminent and not transcendent, was confessing Christianity. Right. It went back to the Reformation and the confessions of the Reformation. Right. And what people, uh, what people need to keep in mind is that Hitler didn't kill six million people; he killed ten million people in the concentration camps. Six million of them were Jews. The other four million of them made up a, a broad spectrum of different types of people. But that would include confessing confessional Christians, confessional Lutherans, uh, people who were holding to Reformation confessions and refused to adapt Christianity uh, to uh, to fit this new way of looking at things. Yeah. To, to help our listeners kind of get up to speed on what we're talking about, we're talking about Volkish, which in English is kind of hard to translate, probably Volkish populist, would you say? Right. Yeah. It, it's, it has to do with the community, and and it, it underpinning that is the is is what they call the land and the blood. Yeah, the land and the blood. So they want to go back to Germanic tribalism, uh, pagan polytheistic roots, attachment to nature, even environmentalism yep. comes from that period. Yep. And eugenics, social Darwinism, if you think about all the things that came together, the idea of, that come from, comes from Darwin is the survival of the fittest, and that the survival of the fittest is a way that things are evolving into a better future world. Mm-hmm. And so eugenics is based on the idea that the unfit should not be reproducing. Right. And then okay. and then the so, other part of it is is that people who are not contributing to the community, they don't have individual rights. Your rights exist within the community and and how you contribute to it and if you're sucking the resources out of the community, then you're no longer considered a viable member of the community and and your your life is expendable. You have no individual rights. Right. And and so according to Beath and he has a this fantastic book that everybody ought to read, but he he says they started out by trying to sterilize the unfit. You know, so you start with the mental hospitals and prisons and mm-hmm. deformed or whoever they thought was unfit to reproduce. So you sterilize. Well, that was kind of a slow process. And they found out there was a lot, using modern technology, it's a lot faster to kill people. And so it went from sterilization to euthanasia to ultimately the gas chambers and the death camps. Right. And so... They did not see any problem with this because this was part of the evolutionary process 
of eliminating those that aren't fit to reproduce so that the survival of the fittest is its own moral truth because the transcendent God who has spoken and who said thou shalt not kill has been ruled out. Right. And so we kill the Jews because they had quote-unquote invented the monotheistic God who gave us the Ten Commandments. And then we take the church and try to get rid of the ones who have, quote, a Jewish understanding of the scriptures, and you end up with a church that only embraces the modernistic, imminent, non-transcendent social gospel, and that church actually embraced Hitler and promoted him. Right. (sighs) Wow. (laughs) Yeah, and so... It, during the Enlightenment era, you have the championing of individual rights, which leads to our Declaration of Independence Absolutely. and and to our constitutional government. You, if you embrace this philosophy, this new political religion, then what happens is is that the individual has zero rights, zero, and the most important thing is community. Yes, that's what uh, I... I if- I hope your listeners will get out of the show, if nothing else. The American ideal of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness that is a right of an individual, it was the total opposite of the belief of fascism. Right. Okay? That the community is the only thing that matters, the individual does not. And I noticed when I did my research for my book on emergent, that that theme is constant in there. The individual has to find whatever identity she, he or she has, only in the community. Only in community. And see, the community is a huge emphasis in the emergent church. But not only that, it's creeping into all the purpose-driven churches, and you hear this constant talk, so much so what ends up being under attack is this idea that Christianity offers individuals salvation. Absolutely. I, I, I was just thinking the same thing, Chris. We think so much the same is kind of scary. <laughs> I was just thinking, one of the things that they attack is the idea that the individual can repent and believe the gospel and be given assurance that he or she will go to heaven when they die. Right. McLaren mocks that idea. Oh, yeah. They, they think that's a terrible Christianity. Yeah. And it's too individualistic, and it's a consumer good, or whatever, too, too American. Uh-huh. But, you know, uh, well, that's part of the reason they like N.T. Wright, because he has a, he looks at a communal idea of justification rather than an individual one. Right. But see, I heard this the other day. Um, you know, when, when we stand before God, God's not going to say, okay, now taking group number 53, <laughs> uh, you know. No, when we stand before God, it's, it says in the scriptures, you know, those who are saved, they have their individual names written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Absolutely. And we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. As individuals. As persons, not as a member of a group. And not to say that there isn't any group idea in the Bible. There is. The church is a group. Mm-hmm. The body of Christ is a group. Right. But individuals are important. And so... Uh, one of the things I, I want our listeners to understand, and I hope they go get this book called Modern Fascism by Veith, but some of the terminology in there might confuse some people, and let me explain how, okay? Okay. For example, the ideas we're talking about, the American Constitution, the Bill of Rights, and so on, classically would be called liberal 
democracy. Right. That yeah. That, and that goes back to the era right after the French Revolution. Right. So don't be confused. When it says liberal democracy, it doesn't mean liberalism as it's now known politically. It means the ideas that we're talking about, that actual individuals were endowed by their creator with certain rights. Right. Now, let me let me add to this. If we were to go back in time, put ourselves in uh, the early part of, of uh, 19th century France or Europe, okay, they have had hundreds and hundreds and thousands of years of reign of kings and nobles and dukes. And liberal democracy, that's liberal at that time, the idea that we can, set, we can determine our own destiny as individuals and not have a king rule over us and dictate things to our life. That was considered liberal at that time. And conservatives were those who were defending uh, monarchy and this idea that, uh, that the sovereignty of kings. And so well, if you think of it in those terms, liberal democracy was liberal back then in light of the conservative view of defending the monarchy. Right, exactly. So as as people read the book, if they're not, you know, necessarily trained academically, they need to realize that. And even the concept of humanism has changed. Right. For example, Calvin and Luther were considered humanists. Now, that was what did that mean? Well, that the individual was an important was important, and that you didn't just find your identity by submitting to the Catholic Church and everything that they taught you, but that you yourself could do things like learn Hebrew or Greek and go to the Scripture and understand. And when Luther, in fact, he is abraded for this by McLaren in his book, A Generous Orthodoxy, Luther said, here I stand. Right. McLaren rebukes him, and he calls that the first statement of the modern world. Uh Uh-huh. Okay, because I had the right to study the Bible and determined that the Pope was wrong. Right. Okay, and, and McLaren hates that. Yep. But it, so it, way back when, that'd be called humanist. But now when we call something humanist, we usually call it secular humanism, and it's a total different animal. Right. So there's a, there's a, it, historically there's been some shifting in, in the tectonic plates when it comes to defining these terms. Right. So just if, if, uh, if you, uh, dear listener, decide to get this book we're talking about, just realize that some of these terms he's using in their more classical meaning, not the, well, the current meaning. Okay, yeah, that's important. So if it says liberal democracy, it doesn't mean socialism. Okay. All right, so kind of there's four, there's four major points that I think that Veith brings up, and I, can, and I can talk about this in light of the different philosophical ideas. Okay. Uh, we've been talking about the transcendent versus the eminent, the yep. community versus the individual. Um, uh, let's see. Um, what's my next one? Uh, and, and that kind of plays out. Heaven or eternal life is then replaced by the kingdom of God here on earth in their way of thinking. And then you've got this idea of authenticity, which is kind of a... a, a oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Of a, of, that's a major theme. We got to talk about that one. Okay, let's let's unpack this idea of authenticity. Okay. What is that all about? Okay, and, and I'll, I'll tell, tell you where, where it comes from. About. Okay, and it comes from this Heidegger. Yep. The idea is that morals don't come from a transcendent God who reveals moral truth through law, like the Ten Commandments or Jesus and the Sermon on the Mount, but morals are an act of the will. Okay. Okay, and so if a person has uh, an act of the will that determines 
what that person is going to believe in and live by, then whatever that act of the will is, if that person lives according to it, that makes the person authentic. Okay, so basically this is this ties into rationalism versus subjectivism. So being authentic basically means being true to your subjective self. Right, and so in Germany how that played out was well, you add that with the social Darwinism that you have evolution happening and the, the strong and the powerful have a right over everybody else because that's just how the Dar- Darwinian process works. Uh-huh. And it ends up for the good that the strong and the strong-willed and the, those who can grab power are doing what's right for, for the evolutionary process. Well, then you end up with this idea of that Morals are an act of the will. So if you get a Hitler who, through his superior willpower, can uh, arise and, and supremely above everybody else and get them to submit to his will, that becomes your, your new system of morals. Right. Let me, let me add to that. In my research, what I've discovered about one of the things that was so appealing to why fascism gives rise to these these terrible dictators like Mussolini and Hitler is because in the fascist way of thinking, this dictator really kind of represents the physical embodiment of the collective Volkish will. Exactly. And, and a sort of nativist, you know, Germanic or Italian or whatever, this, this person uh, exemplifies what it means to be Aryan. Right. What it means to be a part of this race, what it means to be connected to our pagan roots. Or to this to community. To the soil and to the blood. To this community. Yes, exactly. And so in Italy, for example, in fact, I have a coin from the 40s that was a fascist dime. And the symbol for fascism was a bundle of sticks that were tied together. And, and it symbolized everybody's kind of tied, you know, they're all going the same direction, they're all tied together. Yep. That's the fascist symbol. And uh, the people then went to these mass rallies and, and found a sense of community, of connection. And uh, they try, one of the problems they were trying to rid themselves of was what they perceived to be alienation that was caused by um, the, the Industrial Revolution. Mm-hmm. Okay, so people became, rather than... You know, pre-industrial times where families lived together and extended families and they had the same trade or they were farmers or they were in a village Mm -hmm. and you usually whatever your father did you did and your son does and there was a sense of community and so these uh, existential philosophers were saying that the modernity and the uh, uh, industrial revolution had alienated people from community and from nature right. and from the land, and, and this urbanization was a bad thing, and it created too much individualism where people took off on their own and went and got a job, and they were disconnected, and so they wanted to reconnect everybody with the community and with the land. Yep, yep, and oh man, it, <laughs> it and that, that kind of plays on the existential strings of everybody. Yep. You know, and Veith says this in his book. He says, fascism is essentially a response to the alienation that has been a part of the spiritual landscape of the West since the Enlightenment. Individuals in the modern world feel isolated from each other. 
Science, technology, and the economic realities and environmental damage of the Industrial Revolution isolate the individual from nature. There has thus been a genuine yearning for community and for an organic unity with the natural world. Isn't that what's going on today? It's the same exact thing. I mean, that's what the emergents are trying to do. And right. That's what they're offering to young people. Right. We're and not so, going to give you individual salvation. We're going to reconnect you with an existential community of authentic people. Yeah, that are connected to the world. And so when you read McLaren, he's talking about holistic salvation right. in an environmental sense. Okay, we're going to pause right there and pay some bills. If you would like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. need to rethink Christianity, we need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Welcome to the first emergent bank of postmodernism. How can I be of service to you today, ma'am? Ever since you people changed your name to the first emergent bank of postmodernism, I haven't been able to figure out what the correct balance is in my account. Every time I log into your website, I can't even figure out very basic information like what checks have cleared or whether my deposits have been credited to my account. It's like everything is shrouded in a mysterious haze. Oh, I see. So you're here because you'd like to have a conversation about this. No. I'd just like to know the current balance of my checking account, please, because my rent is due tomorrow. <clears throat> well, let me pull that information up for you. Ah, uh, yes. <clears throat> I see. That is very intriguing. What's intriguing? Is there something wrong? Am I overdrawn? What is my balance, please? Uh, well, ma'am, it appears that your balance may or may not be what you think it should be. What's that supposed to mean? Just look on the computer screen and tell me the number where it says account balance. Well, ma'am, I would never be so arrogant as to presume that I could actually know with any degree of certainty what the balance of your account is. What, what does arrogance have to do with telling me my bank account balance? 
Just read me the number. Well, you see, that's just it. Uh, a specific number is so final, so narrow, so limiting. This idea that your bank balance is merely a fixed and limited numerical truth is just an artifact from the modern society. Well, we've moved on beyond modernism, and we're now experiencing the liberation and the freedom of postmodern ways of interpreting the truth. Are you out of your mind? Well, don't you see? It's not the number that is so important. That is merely a cold and detached way of understanding truth. To say that any of us can know what truth is is nothing more than pure arrogance on our part. Who are we to say that we can know truth? We feel it's more important to humbly approach the question of account balances by having community conversations about whether or not you earn the money in your bank account in a way that doesn't support the theocapitalist suicide machine. It's more important to ask you to think about what is the best use of this money in your account rather than just give you a fixed figure. This conversation is pointless. Look, right here, according to my calculations, I should have $2,356 in my checking account. Well, is it in there or not? You may or may not be correct in your assertion. Um, some people who are sensitive to these sorts of limiting ideas may or may not agree with your calculations, while others who may or may not be smarter than me may believe that your calculations regarding your bank balance are overly influenced by a male-dominated Western culture. That's it. I'm closing my account. You give me my $2,356 right now! That was a disgusting display of pride and arrogance. <laughs> Keep that up and I will have to call the manager and have you thrown out of here. Great idea. You call your manager because I want to close my account right now. Well, <clears throat> I would call my manager, but I'm not certain that she's even here. The spring and summer travel seasons are just around the corner. And the last thing you want to do is pay more for your airfare, hotel, and rental car than you need to. That's why Pirate Christian Radio is proud to have Cheapo Air as one of our featured advertisers. Cheapo Air has over 18 million flight deals, low airfare guarantees, and 85,000 negotiated hotel rates around the globe. And if you visit our website... PirateChristianRadio.com forward slash cheap. We have a promo code that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. So visit PirateChristianRadio.com forward slash cheap. Write down the promo code, click on the web banner, and book your spring or summer travel today. And remember, a portion of your purchase at Cheapo Air will go to support Pirate Christian Radio. That web address again is piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Thank you for your support.
warning, post-modernity is nothing more than fascism rehashed. And I mean it. All right, need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon your generous gifts and contributions in order to continue to bring this vital, important radio outreach to you as well as to the world. You can partner with us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically uh, contribute a mere $6.95 every month to the mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And when you sign up, you also get access to our Pirate Cove. Keep that in mind. Of course, if you'd like to uh, fill in the blank as to how much you'd like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. I'm just going to dive right back into my uh, discussion with Bob DeWay. And keep in mind, it's it's heady. It's important that you understand it. And if you don't, you, you really got to apply yourself to it because what we're saying is critical for you to get and to understand. Here is the balance of my discussion with Bob DeWay. And so I don't know. Hopefully people can get up to speed on this terminology, but transcendence, in, in a biblical sense, the Bible teaches transcendence and imminence. Mm-hmm. Okay? God is above and beyond the creation. He created the world out of nothing. He's not dependent on his own creation. He's not contingent on anything in the creation. But this God who created the world and humanity out of nothing is a loving, merciful God who also dwells with those who are contrite in heart. Mm-hmm. Says that in Isaiah. So the imminence that God has with us is relational in the sense that he'll relate to us as individuals and as a church. Right. Okay? But his transcendence is as uh, uh, an order of being. God is above and beyond anything that's created. Right. Okay, so postmodern, emergent, and, and frankly fascist, neo-Orthodox thinking wants to destroy transcendence as much as possible. Yep. Or, or, I was thinking about this today, Chris, in a weird way, they, they, create, they, they create transcendence beyond what the Bible says in order to make it as if we can't know anything about God. Right. It, it's, Take it's, Paul Tillich or somebody like that. Well, his stuff is so ridiculously obtuse, like you could barely even figure out what it is that Paul Tillich is talking about. Well, their idea is that God is so other that anything, any language about God is equivocation, and we can't even really talk about God. You just have to take a blind leap of faith. Yeah, th- th- which is ridiculous because, I mean, let, let me give you an example. I mean, we know God's name not because we invented it, but because Moses asked God's name when, the, when he talked with God at the burning bush. Exactly. You know, so we we don't fought, we we don't serve a nameless, mysterious being. We we serve and and worship a, a a a God who has revealed Himself and actually given us His name. Yes, and as I debated, because there were some neo-Orthodox people when I was in seminary that I debated with, uh, and I said, well, well, okay, we have human language and it's meaningful to us when we speak with each other. So what if God invades human history 
as he did in the person of Jesus Christ. And he speaks to humans in their own language so they can understand him. Mm-hmm. Why, isn't that God talking to us? Can't we understand what Jesus means when he says, love your neighbor as yourself? Is that equivocation? No, that's not equivocation. Right. That's God uh, condescending to speak to humans in a manner that they can understand as rational beings. But in a, in a weird way, there are those theologians that destroy all transcendence and have nothing but imminence, which is the liberals. Right. And the neo-Orthodox claim to be extolling transcendence, but they make it so utterly transcendent that it becomes meaningless to us. It's all we're left with practically is imminence. Right. It, what the, it seems to me like what we see over and again is is that there's errors that people make the grievous errors when they try to basically parse things that exist for all intents and purposes in paradox. For instance, is Jesus God or is he human? The answer is yes. Yeah, the hypostatic union. Exactly. And so when we, we see heresies in the Christian church where, they, where, where, where people will trump up one of Christ's natures over the other. You know, so where he's either all God or he's all man or uh, there's no mixing of the two. So over and again, you have basically what happens is is heresies and really yeah. bad ones occur when there's splits in things that God intended for there not to be splits. Yeah, so God has spoken to us about himself. Let's take, for example, talking about this, uh, Brian McLaren and his seven Jesuses. <laughs> okay, yes, exactly, from the okay. uh, from General yeah, Orthodox. Uh, I don't know, it was a liberal one, a fundamentalist one, the Catholic one, uh-huh. this and this. Well, what he's implying is that Jesus is only experienced in certain communities, and depending on what community you're in, you experience a different Jesus. And that, and every each one of those different experiences of Jesus is valid and it authentic, is all right? And in the in a bigger sense, we don't exactly know who Jesus came into flesh really is. We only experience a certain Jesus depending on what community we're in, right. and according to this uh, guy that we heard at that conference, that's a good thing the Holy Spirit wants us to be so confused. <laughs> yeah, that was Moltmann. <laughs> oh, man. So, okay, so that that this ex- completely explains, if you understand irrational philosophy, you, you don't have the logical law of non-contradiction anymore. Truth, there is no transcendent truth. There's nothing, there's nothing that's true for all people everywhere exactly. at all time. Instead, you have subjective experiences of God and what he's like when you are part of a, quote, faith community. Right, and that's all you need. Right. But the, the exploitation of that in fascism was to make a national socialism and being Germanic or Aryan becomes your big community. The church becomes subservient to that. And then, with your social Darwinism and your will, morality coming from the will... By the way, I like the way Veith pointed out that this is the polar opposite of what Luther taught in the bondage of the will. Right. Okay, you have, you have the setup for the atrocities that happened in Nazi Germany and in they all made rational sense to those people that were doing them. Mm-hmm. These were not just uneducated barbarians uh, running off, you know, ragged, but these were elite, highly educated, intelligent people 
who had ideas, and their ideas had consequences, and the consequence was Adolf Hitler. Exactly, exactly. So it, one of the ways I put it, I, I spoke on this uh, this past Sunday at, at church, is I said that um, you, you ideas have consequences, and when we talk about uh, the founding fathers in the United States, we talk about the philosophers that 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 guided their thoughts that led to this this great country that we have where we have these individual freedoms and rights in this constitutional uh republic and um and I said the the men who influenced the founding fathers they were uh Locke, Berkeley. You you know you could talk about the political uh philosophers that really had a profound effect on them and then you talk about the great thinkers of you know, of the constitution, Madison and Franklin and Jefferson and 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 then their contributions to this. And then comes Hitler and um no one talks about who were the philosophical influences that that guided the his fascist government. And the reality is is that Hitler didn't fall out of the sky. Uh-huh. He he emerged in a particular intellectual conversation at the and political uh, it was it was religious it was political it it was intelli- it, it, there was an intelligence behind the whole thing and hitler was the natural consequence of the philosophies that were in the water that people were subscribing to during this volkish period between 1919 and 1933 absolutely and and it spilled over into the united states we had this saying or the founder of Planned Parenthood, who was a promoter of eugenics. Yep. And she was a big progressive. <laughs> yeah, progressive, by the way, is just another way to say socialist. Right. Or it, if progressives are really close to fascists in their in their thinking. Which exactly. Is, which... So uh, what was going on there? Well, let's just unpack that a little bit and see how the same ideas are influencing us today in America. We had this idea with... Um, it's, fascist Germany and pre-fascist Germany, that the uh, morals are an act of the human will. Right, that there's no transcendent truth. They hated this idea of a transcendent God, and the tool that they used to attack transcendent truth was something called deconstructionism. Uh-huh. And who is the father of deconstructionism? Do you know? Uh... Well, these uh, uh, talks about Heidegger and Demand, it's uh-huh. Paul Demand. Paul Demand, yeah. Yeah. So Martin Heidegger, by the way, was a major philosopher in Germany during the Volkish period. And he, he he published this work in 1927 that just was like a bombshell going off in, in in the intellectual spheres in Germany. And the name of it was Sein und Zeit, and it means uh, time and being. And um, Martin Heidegger... Uh, was the guy who created, you know, this deconstructionism and this idea that a text can have an infinite number of different ways in which it's interpreted. And he was in, he's the one who taught the, uh, the German people how to use deconstructionism. And it's ver- really interesting is that Heidegger is the exact philosopher that men like Leonard Sweet, um, uh, you know, that, uh, they, that they, they go to. And he was the one who influenced Derrida, Foucault, uh, Richard Rorty, the guys who were the major deconstructionists in the postmodern movement that the emergents are hanging on to. Exactly. Postmodernism is a direct descendant of the thinking that led to fascism. Yep. Let and me... So you, why do you want to deconstruct? Well, because you don't want to allow the ideas that, for example, let's go to our own constitution, our Bill of Rights and so on, 
these ideas of people being created in God's image and having inalienable rights to life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness, such things as that, they deconstruct that. Right. And that's their way to get rid of it. How do they deconstruct it? Well, Vieth talks about this in his book. They go and they look at who wrote it, and they say, well, look at Jefferson, he owned slaves, so he really didn't believe what he was saying, so he didn't mean that. Right. Well, what Vieth points out is the fact that there's such a thing as hypocrites uh, doesn't mean that language has no meaning. Right. Okay, so let's say a preacher says, preaches from the pulpit, thou shalt not steal, and it turns out later they find out he was dipping into the petty cash or something. It doesn't prove that thou shalt not steal is not a valid command from God. Right. It only proves the preacher was not living up to what he should have been living up to. But the deconstructionists want to get rid of all the meaning so you no longer have the transcendent moral law, and so it's almost impossible to be a hypocrite unless you're inauthentic. Right. Okay? Okay? So if you say stealing is good, and then you steal, you're being authentic, you have done nothing wrong. Right. Let me me read to you uh, a section from a book written by a man who fled uh, Nazi Germany uh, in uh, 1934, and he wrote about the fascists uh, when he got to the United States. Here's what he wrote, in, and this is from a book he wrote in 1939 that I've been able to dig up. He says, Fascist, fascism has no positive theology of its own, but it confines itself to refuting, fighting, and denying all traditional ideas and ideologies. Does that, I mean, you could literally tr- take out the word fascism here and say the emergent, emergent church. Yeah, that's emergent. Emergent is a reaction against things. Yep. And that's why they, McLaren and all of these other guys, will call themselves post this, post that, right. post the other thing. They're against all these things that went before, and they're claiming some new, better thing is emerging and is doing it collectively within the community. And they're also denying the meaning of language because... Their use of the Bible is such that you can't really know what God said. Mm-hmm. And their evolutionary idea, like the social Darwinism of, that undergirded fascism, uh, that ultimately goes back to Hegel, who was a spiritual evolutionist, is the same idea. So everything's going to get better, and it's going to happen in communities, and it happens as we become authentic, and it happens as we cast, as we cast off all of the restraints of of the ideas of traditional biblical Christianity. Right. Let me continue with this quote, okay? Okay. Again, from this book from 1939. Fascism not only refutes all old ideas, but denies for the first time in European history the foundation on which all former political and social systems have been built. The justification of the social and political system and the authority constituted under it as the only means to further the true well-being of the individual subjected to it. So, I mean, basically what he's describing here is that fascism, it has no positive theology. It only refutes and denies. And it not it it denies everything. I mean, and and it denies even the very foundations that all previous political uh, governments have been founded on. Okay, and this was written in 1935. Now, this is kind of the more chilling thing. He says that the masses joined fascism not because they believed the promises of fascism, 
uh, which the, uh, which take the place of a positive creed, but because they did not believe them. And it, that sounds kind of crazy, but let me explain what he was what he's talking about here. He says he was documenting how the fascists came to power, and um, it basically in the it's that the the fascists were promising some very terrible things. Okay, if you read Mein Kampf, uh, you know they, they were talking about persecuting their political enemies, uh, removing people from uh, participating in the community. I mean, some uh, rearming Germany and stuff like that. And what happened? It, it, this guy says P, the masses supported fascism not because they believed their promises, but because they didn't believe them. So what happens is, is that but when the fascists were coming to power, the media were against them and saying, "Listen, if when the if the fascists come to power, they're going to rearm Germany. They're going to persecute their political enemy, uh, uh, the dissenters. They're going to do all these terrible things." And the, and the German people would say, "Oh, that's just propaganda." So they don't believe what they even said they were going to do. Right, and, and, and then the media would say, no, it's not propaganda. We're quoting to you what these people said they're going to do. And then their response was, you just don't understand the subtle nuances of what they mean by that. Oh, brother. That, this was written in 1939. Unbelievable. <laughs> and, and so, I mean, what does this sound like? You know, wow. let me... Wow, wow. Yeah, let I, me... I, you know what? I think that we have a massive problem in America and in the church in America today of naivete in a sense that we don't believe that these ideas that are being taught in our colleges and seminaries are going to ever have any consequences. Right. Now, let me compare what I just read to you. I, want, I, I, I don't know if you have Tony Jones's book, uh, the, uh, the New Christians. That one I haven't read yet. Okay. Let me, it, there's an appendix uh, in Tony Jones's book, The New Christians. It's Appendix C, and it's entitled Disastrous Statements. Now, remember, I was just reading to you uh, from a book from 1939 that said the fascists have no positive theology of their own. They only destroy. Okay, let me read a little bit of this. Um, for some time, this is Tony Jones writing, says, For some time, pressure has been mounting on the leaders of the emergent movement to make some definitive statements about what we believe. Where do they stand on the ordination of gays? What's their position on the inerrancy of scripture? What do they believe about the doctrine of hell? But within the emergent uh, community, there's been a reticence to make statements. Although statements of doctrine and of affirmations of ideological positions abound in church and denominational websites, it seems that many emergent leaders, uh, 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 it seems to many emergent leaders that that's a modern enterprise, especially when these statements serve as a gatekeeper function, determining who is saved and who can be a member of a church or who can be part of the conversation. The feeling among emergent Christians is that these uh, determinations are best left to God alone. So the coordinators of emergent have often been asked, uh, usually by their critics, to proffer a doctrinal statement that lays out clearly what they believe. And I'm merely a participant in the conversation who delights in the ongoing reformation that occurs as we bring the gospel into engagement with culture in ever new ways. But but I've been asked to respond to this ongoing demand for clarity and closure, and I believe there are several reasons why Emergent should not have a statement of faith to which its members are asked or required to subscribe. Why is such a uh, why is such a move unnecessary? Jesus did not have a statement of faith, so he called others into faithful relation to God through a life in the Spirit. So, I mean, okay, really, what he's saying is that what we have is culture and community. We don't need anything else. Exactly, the, and that's the basis of fascism. <laughs> that's right. volkish. It, it, very, very volkish. Now, 
we've made the claim that Martin Heidegger was a profound philosophical thinker as it pertains to the, the creation and formation and, uh, and ideas of fascism. Now, just so you know that Bob and I are not completely nuts when we make such statements, um, I've got audio from a video that was put out by the BBC uh, back in the 90s uh, about Mar Martin Heidegger, and this, this, uh, the name of it is All Too Human, and this... Uh, this came to th this documentary was put together as it became more and more clear just how involved in the Nazi Party Martin Heidegger was. And keep in mind, Martin Heidegger is the is the guy who created deconstructionism, which is the major acid that the uh, postmoderns and emergent use to deconstruct and destroy all thought, all doctrines, all theologies, all all authoritative ideas all transcendent ideas, and it's Heidegger who came up with it. And the BBC in this documentary, I'm going to play this, uh, two clips. The first one's about three minutes and 30 seconds long, and I'll let you uh, listen to it. The question comes up, why did Martin Heidegger join the Nazi party? Well, the BBC and uh, their historians and philosophers answered the question straight up. Let's, let's, let's listen in on this. On January the 30th, 1933... Adolf Hitler became Chancellor of Germany. He immediately launched a process of restructuring designed to eliminate so-called non-Aryans from public office and clamp down on all forms of dissent. Towards the end of April, after the rector of Freiburg University had resigned in protest at these measures, Heidegger astonished almost everyone who knew him by allowing his name to be put forward in the ballot to elect a successor. He was duly elected by an almost unanimous vote of the university's governing body, although 13 of the professors who would normally have been entitled to vote were forbidden to do so because they were Jews. A week later, Heidegger delivered his inaugural address as rector to a capacity audience in the university's main hall, specially bedecked for the occasion with swastika flags. Then on May the 1st, a symbolic date in the Nazi calendar, he officially joined the party, thereby winning the gratitude of all those who wished to see Hitler succeed. The first few months of Nazi rule were by no means a sure thing. It was still a bit of a tenuous operation, so the initial months were very important. And this was the specific finding... By the way, this is historian Richard Wallen speaking. ...finding of the University Denazification Commission that Heidegger had played an essential role in placing Hitler into the saddle by serving to legitimate the regime on the basis of his immense worldwide philosophical prestige. Those who had known the Wizard of Meskirch during his days at Marburg University were stunned and appalled when they heard what he had done. did Heidegger attach himself so firmly to the Nazi cause? What factors other than personal ambition impelled him to act as he did? Heidegger appears to have hero-worshipped Hitler and his cronies quite as slavishly as any Bavarian housewife, and there can be little doubt that his adulation had its roots in a shared inheritance of racial prejudice. 
but he also seems to have detected a strong affinity between the Nazi creed and certain tenets of his own philosophy. Did you hear that? He, certain, he, the Nazi creed really resonated with certain tenets of his philosophy. Let's continue. In virtually all Heidegger's lectures and texts from the 1920s, he'd been calling for some kind of notion of community. Did you hear that? Some notion of community. Listen. And of course, one of the linchpins of Nazi ideology was the idea of a national community that would unite all Germans. So when Heidegger put the hesitant approaches of his philosophy together the realities of Germany in 1933, he thought that aspects of his texts and his doctrines had actually come to life. What he seems to have done is to have... Uh, broadened the notion of individual authenticity and applied it to the people, to the folk. And I think that this led him finally out of the uh, university library into the streets to identify with National Socialism, which he thought of as the realization of his own theory. So there's the first soundbite. And uh, the BBC and their scholars believe that the reason why Martin Heidegger, the founder of deconstructionism and this idea of authentic, individual authenticity and community and all these emergent postmodern themes that we're hearing, the reason he joined the Nazi party is because he thought that the Nazis embodied his philosophy. It was his philosophy brought to life in flesh and blood. Yep. Absolutely. And I don't think it was any accident Chris, when we were in Chicago and we were at that workshop, and remember Heidegger was an existential philosopher? Yeah. And neo-orthodoxy is just existential philosophy expressed in religious terms. Uh-huh. And remember when they were uh, telling us that their idea was that the reader, uh, the communal readers determine the meaning of the Bible? Yep. And I asked that entire group, there were, you know, 25, 30 emergence there, if there was anybody there that did not believe in a neo-Orthodox understanding of Scripture, and there was not a single one. Right, and that's and this is this is Bart's uh, idea, you know? Yeah, well, it's just going back to the German philosophy slash theology of the early part of the 20th century, where you disconnect the Scripture, and you have... I mean, really, deconstruction is simply saying the reader determines the meaning of the text. Right. The, you know, the Derrida and Foucault basically taught that there's an infinite number of ways in which a text can be interpreted and that the uh, the author cannot expect that he's communicating something that uh, you know that should be understood by the reader. I mean, basically, the reader gets to determine the, uh, uh, the outcome of the text. And, and I, I gave an example this past Sunday, and I said, listen... Deconstructions basically say that the author's not trying to communicate something that you're supposed to understand. Instead, you know, you can do with it as you want. So if you were to take the book Winnie the Pooh and, uh, and you know, it, it, as a deconstructionist, you could say, well, let's take a look at how, uh, uh, how uh, a Marxist might interpret Winnie the Pooh. It, it would be the story of how the bourgeoisie is suppressing the proletariat and uh, and how Christopher Robin is really the ultimate symbol of the bourgeoisie, and then his animals that are not even they're they're less than real. They're they're being suppressed and, and oppressed and manipulated by 
the evil Christopher Robin, this bourgeoisie white character, and uh, and and Winnie the Pooh and his friends Piglet, and and they're the they're the proletariat being held down and being viewed as less than real because of that. And I said it sounds ridiculous, but it, that's exactly how oh, yeah. the uh, deconstructionists work. Basically, saying there's an infinite possible ways that you can interpret it, and they teach you to basically teach text. Treat them like Play-Doh. I mean, you could, they're playthings. You can turn them into any, you know, like they're tinker toys. You can make anything you want out of them. Yeah, unless, of course, they write a book, then they want you to understand them for what they mean. You know, it's funny that you would say that. Um, there's a postmodern guy who writes for the Huffington Post. His name is George Ellerick. And uh, I've taken his, a few of his articles apart here at Fighting for the Faith, and we've gotten into an email exchange, and he wrote an email to me pointing me to a, a blog post that he had written basically saying that I shouldn't judge. And so I said, you know, I said, since there's an infinite way of uh, infinite possible ways in which we I can interpret a text, I've basically interpreted that text that you've written to me as basically meaning that you think that uh, that Ronald Reagan was the best president that there ever was. <laughs> and that you're pro-slavery and all these other stuff. And he got really mad at me and I and he tried to point me back to what he was saying. I said, stop. I said, stop oppressing me with your imperialistic, colonizing, literal interpretation of your text. <laughs> yeah, I, in my book I wrote about my, our associate pastor did the same thing in a hermeneutics class where they were forced to read a book that was claiming the reader determines the meaning. Right. And they had to write a report about the book, and so he wrote this report saying, the, what, what I get from this book is that the Holy Spirit inspired author of the Scripture determines the meaning. <laughs> Yeah. What, could the, what could the professor say? He can't say anything. You can't say anything. So the thing is absurd. And let me tell you how it plays out in theology, because when I was getting my theological degree in the 90s, the popular thing was that every group gets to have their own theology, and any group outside the group it really couldn't say anything about it. Uh-huh. So you had an African theology, an Asian theology, a South American theology, a feminist theology, and the claim was we white Euro males have no right to critique any of those other theologies, whatever they might be. Mm-hmm. Well, that's the same concept we're talking about here. Right. Meaning is determined by the group, and the group deconstructs whatever text that they're using, in this case the Bible. Right. And whatever their group decision is about what they're going to believe it's immune from any kind of correction or criticism from anywhere else. Now, let me let me tell you where this ends up leading. It does lead to Hitler. And something I heard at the most recent Emergent Conference, I was at the Transform Missional Community Conference, and in one of the breakout sessions that I attended, um, the, the, the issue of Adolf Hitler and the Holocaust came up, okay, and whether or not they can they could determine that deem that that was um, wrong, and they were consistent. They 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 literally were not able to, and they refused to say that Adolf Hitler and the Holocaust was evil or wrong. And they basically said this is their conclusion. Well, we got to remember Hitler's in the kingdom too. Oh my! That is a direct quote. Unbelievable. I have it on audio, but the recording's not that clear. But I, if you, somebody wants to, wants to hear it, I could play it for you. But it'd be well, tough to hear on the radio. I believe, I believe you. Uh, there's no. This whole thing is horrific. Yeah. Where it's heading, 
Well, we can't know for sure, but it's going to be really bad. Well, here's the deal is, is that we're losing the ability to say that's wrong. And that, exactly. and as it's like Vith in his book points out that when you, a contemporary example is the abortion argument, okay? Mm-hmm. What was Heidegger's idea? Authentic. What, what's authentic? The choice of the will. Right. Living according to your own belief and your own choice is authentic, and that's all you need for moral. Moral. Mm-hmm. Well, how do the abortion uh, proponents argue that the choice of the will is all that you need to establish the rightness of a certain action? Right. There's nothing transcendent. It's yeah, there's your... no transcendent God that said, "Thou shalt not kill." And we don't have to listen to that. Right. So. Dear listeners, we're living this right now. You just look around and you see it. The right to choose your own morals within a community, whatever community that might be, mm-hmm. is all that they deem necessary. Well, what is to stop some uh, neo-Hitler type to rally the entire community of uh, uh, based on race or based on nationality or whatever, to, to will whatever they decide to will. Right. Let's. I mean, let's let's put it in a hypothetical. Let's take it out of uh, the, the historical for a second. And put it into a hypothetical. What if, uh, you know, you know, in the next election, somebody there's a political leader who rises up. He's elected, and he make and he's uh, he's elected by an overwhelming majority of the of the American people, and he runs on the platform. We're going to invade Canada and Mexico and annex them, and we're going to murder anybody who opposes us uh, imperialistically going into those countries and taking them over. Okay, but if if you believe that you know that there are no transcendent truths, you can't say, "Wait a second, that's wrong. That's immoral. That's a sin." That and it it you know, the the emergence, if they're consistent, would have to basically say. Well, that's the will of the Volkish. That's what the community decided for yeah, itself folks, in political yeah. conversation. The populist, the, that's what everybody wants. And see, with deconstruction, then you don't even have such a thing as a constitution reining you in anymore. Right. Because you read it however you want. Yeah, it, it, words are just toys. You just do whatever yeah, you want so with them. Whatever the founding fathers meant by the constitution is determined not by the writers mm-hmm. or and the words that they use to express their ideas is determined by the readers. And if we happen to read it to mean something totally different, then that's our right as a community to read however we want to read. Yep. Okay, so we've got the rational replaced by the subjective, which is now the authentic, supposedly. Uh, The individual is replaced by the community. Um, transcendent replaced by the eminent, the, the here and now, the whatever. And this is a, this is, these are thoughts that war against real truth and ultimately have consequences in that they take, they teach a community, uh, that they, it's whatever they want or feel that goes. And as a result of it, these, the, the ultimate consequences of this, it can lead to the rise of a totalitarian dictator over the the people who subscribe to these things. Yes, and because that community then, if it gets to be a big enough one, like a national community, has no, cannot be critiqued by anybody from the outside. Right. Because to do that, you have to have transcendent truth by which to use to critique it. And people on the outside, they have their own community, they don't have anything to say to us. Well, the case of World War II, the outside 
ended up being uh, other countries that mm-hmm. went to war and destroyed Hitler and the Third Reich and National Socialism. But uh, <coughs> really, as Wieth says in his book, you don't defeat ideas through a war. Right. You can defeat a nationality of, or, or a nation, national army, but the ideas don't necessarily go away. And what he points out is they did not go away. Right. And see, that's kind of why this, this conversation you and I are having, it can be so controversial, is because historically we think fascism was defeated on the battlefield, and now the term fascist is basic. It doesn't have any meaning. It, well, it's not used other than for somebody to derogatorily speak about whoever they don't like. Right. But the the philosophical underpinnings of fascism never went away. The ideas are still there. Mm-hmm. And to naively think that we can hold these ideas nationally uh, and popularly, and for those ideas to not come to any kind of consequences like they did during World War II, I think it's foolishness. Right. At this point, I mean, I think that post-modernity flies under a different name, and that name is fascism. And, well, they wouldn't call themselves that, but that's what it boils down to. Right. If you if you study the history of what, fa- what the th- ideology and philosophy and theology of fascism has been historically... Then the, the, it is. I think you can make a very compelling case that postmodernism equals fascism, in its in its ideological form. Yes. Now, as uh, uh, Doctor Veith pointed out in his book, the, none of the people holding to postmodernity that are writing the books today would ever uh, advocate returning to the policies of Adolf Hitler. No, there's a difference between Nazism and fascism. That's probably a better way of putting it. Yeah, they they wouldn't advocate that. But when you start teaching the ideas that lead to certain consequences, you can't be shocked when the same thing happens over again. Right. Just like, uh, you know, the Reformation and the Enlightenment ideas of, of the rights of the individual, gave right. gave life to the American Revolution, these deconstructionist philosophical ideas that we're now embracing in mass and are running through the church and through the greater culture like wildfire, they have they 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 have natural consequences that come with them. And just like and, and see the reason why Heidegger joined the Nazi party was because he saw it as an embodiment of his philosophy. And so, please realize that emergent slash postmodern is diametrically opposed to the ideas of the Reformation. Right. They mock the Reformation. They they mock Luther's statement, "Here I stand," as if some individual could stand up. Let's say you're an individual in a church that went apostate. Okay, can you stand up to that church and say, "Here I stand. I'm standing on." faith alone and Christ alone and grace alone and scripture alone and so on and I'm standing for the gospel whether this entire church wants to go off the cliff or not and they would look at that as as inauthentic and invalid because the community is the one that embodies what's right. Right. What Luther should have done in in their way of thinking is, you know, we'll form his own little faith community and they can come up with their, their own equally valid experience of God. Yeah, or whatever. He couldn't just stand against the entire church like he did 
Right. And uh, the same thing goes with the U.S. Constitution. If you want to look at the political realm, we're going to deconstruct that. We're going to get rid of the things that made America great. Remember in the book that we read, uh, one of the uh, ideas of getting rid of the Jews, besides to be rid of their monotheistic God who gives laws, they wanted to get rid of the banking capitalists. Yep. Okay? And that was a lot of Jewish people. Yeah. And because uh, Germany wasn't right-wing the way we call right-wing now. It no. was socialist. Right. Yep. So, so I think a very lot of people don't understand history. They don't understand what was going on. Right. I cannot. I cannot stress enough. If you have not picked up Gene Veith's book, Modern Fascism, and read it, you need to read it because it will help you understand ideologically what it is that we're really facing here right now in the church, and 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 in greater Western culture as as a whole because this. Uh, postmodern deconstructionism that has its r- hooks into Heidegger and his philosophy and his deconstructionist ideas have been ruling the academic world now for the past two decades in uh, most of the Western uh, a- uh, academic communities. Exactly, and I, that I have concrete evidence for. And what really bugs me is I hear these people who are supposed to be experts about this getting up and saying, well, emergent is basically dead, and don't worry about it. <coughs> Excuse me. Don't worry about it. It's just going to go away. Right. Well, how in the world is this post postmodern theology going to go away when the young new hires that are replacing the aging, um, retiring professors are almost all postmodern? Well, you, did you hear that uh, Tony Jones of the of Emergent Village has gotten a, a professor post at uh, Fuller uh, Seminary? Well, he should fit in there. <laughs> he he won't stick out like a sore thumb there at no, all. He'll fit in perfectly because that's where a lot of this stuff came from. Right, exactly. And so you have you have uh, even our local Baptist college over here has this. Almost all of their new professors, according to somebody I know, are talking this postmodern lingo. Yep. And our young people are being trained in this. And I've been going, you know, I'm using whatever audience I can find, whether it's speaking at conferences or writing books or doing radio shows like this or doing our own radio show or even in the local church. I'm trying to warn the church, but I feel like the warning's falling on a lot of deaf ears. You're just a crazy person. Listen, you can't believe what those emergents say. Why do you take them so serious? Don't you understand the subtle nuance of what it is that they're experiencing in their community conversations? Yeah, I do understand it. That's why we're doing this radio show. <laughs> exactly. I want to play one more soundbite, and this is a shorter one. And this this is uh, the philosopher um, George Steiner uh, from the BBC uh, documentary on Martin Heidegger making the connection between uh, Foucault uh, and, uh, and Heidegger. Foucault being, you know, one of the major uh, philosophical guys, you know, in the past 20 years, who has been a major influence on postmodernity and deconstructionism, and uh, and this is a guy that, uh, well, I hate to say it, but uh, Tony Jones, Brian McLaren, Doug Paget, they're really well versed in Foucault's epistemology. But uh, here's again the BBC article, uh, uh, not article, but. Um, documentary making the connection between the postmodern deconstructionist and Heidegger. Here we go. 
Every great poet has intuited this, but Heidegger has said it, that it is not we who speak language, but language which speaks us. It structures our world. It structures our sense of time, of identity, of human relations, of love, of violence, and so on. And so when Foucault very, very radically and brilliantly says, there is no more man, uh, there is no more author, etc., etc., when deconstruction speaks of language as an autonomous, inward-turning game, as a dance around an infinity of possible meanings, these are footnotes to Heidegger. <laughs> Holy cow. <laughs> you, you, you know, one of the themes of my book is that Schaefer rebuked this stuff. Yep. Um, one of his rebukes was that you can't live this. Yep, that's right. And so you take what what we just heard. If if uh, you know we your language creates us, we don't speak. With evidence doesn't really work. Well, how could you have a legal system? No, you can't. How could you convict somebody of something because the the law that you use to convict him could mean a thousand different things. And maybe to him, it meant it was okay to do what he did. Yeah, exactly. You know, I'm I'm. It's been a while since I put out a new uh, – I do these things called uh, Marty Python's Flying Circus Churches. They're little uh, comedy satire vignettes that we have yeah. here at Fighting for the Faith. We're, I'm working on one right now. We're, we're going to be recording it in the next couple of days. And this, this, the setting is uh, – it, the, 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 it begins with uh, – you hear teenage music. You hear like Miley Cyrus, Hannah Montana music in the background, and as well as a, a, as well as a uh, television video game playing. And, and all of a sudden, uh, you hear a mom's voice going, what are you doing? And the do- and and the, a girl, a, a daughter says, "Oh, hi, mom. How are you?" And 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 the mom says, "You're playing video games and you're listening to music." Yeah, I, I'm doing that. But I I when I left for the store, I left a note for you that said, "No TV, no video games, no music. I want you to do your chores and do your homework." Well, mom, don't you understand? We live in a postmodern era, and that once the text goes out, that there's an infinite different ways in which you can interpret a text. And so I interpreted your note as basically saying, have fun, do whatever you want. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the ultimate absurdity of it. Right, exactly. And so and it's an attack against humans as created in the image of God. Yep. As rational beings that God has spoken. Just go back, as we said earlier, to the Garden of Eden. Thou shalt not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's clear. It's understandable. There's no reason to have a conversation about it. <laughs> yeah. But did God really say? <laughs> yeah. And so I don't think I'm being harsh or melodramatic when I say this postmodern slash emergent approach is just a reiteration of the, what happened in the Garden of Eden. Yeah, it is. And unfortunately, it, because it of the scale of the people buying into this these this false epistemology um if if uh, if god doesn't grant us um repentance you know in mass from this way of thinking then when this thing gives you know, bears fruit oh it's going to be horrible it's going to be horrible i i told somebody the other day if this thing goes the way it went in uh, in germany and in in europe uh where this was really uh, you know you know grew up I see you know, in, in the early part of the 20th century, if this thing bears the same kind of fruit, I said, when this is all said and done, 
I think uh, it's easy to say that there's probably going to be billions of people who will be dead. Yeah, did you notice that Veith quoted a, what was it, a Finnish uh, ecologist who wanted almost everybody to die? Yeah. And by giving this analogy, so let's say you have a lifeboat that'll hold 10 people, but 100 people fell off the ship. Uh huh. Well, if they all try to get in it, then all 100 die, so it's only humane for 90 to die so that 10 can live. Right. And so they apply that, the deep ecology movement, which, by the way, is quoted favorably by Brian McLaren. Okay. The deep ecology movement has people that advocate for most humans needing to die. Yeah. The number I heard that they want to restart with is somewhere close to just only 500 million people left on the planet. Yeah. I've heard that. I've heard 200 million, something like that. And they, and of course, whenever you get into these, you know, we've heard about the values clarification where they create these hypothetical scenarios where people have to decide who lives. Yeah. And when they do this, which should never be done, but they do it, well, you've only got a bomb shelter for 10, and here's these 30, which 10 should go in. It's always the old, the, the, the feeble, the, and the ones that get in, or the, the strong, the athletic, the intelligent, the useful, the doctors. Mm-hmm. Isn't that exactly what was going on in Germany? Yeah. And compare that to the fact that here in the United States, where we still supposedly have individual rights based upon uh, the, the these basically biblical ideas of the dignity of the individual and individual salvation, that uh, we that our, our seniors live to a ripe old age. And we, there's no thoughts of killing them off for the better good of society, you know, where they're not they're, We don't see them as competing for a limited supply of resources, you know, f- that the community is consuming and that and le- if the community can't survive unless we cut them off because they're just dead weight. Well, that's what socialism will end up doing, though, and because I think it's no coincidence uh Beath talks about this that communism and national socialism are first cousins they're not polar opposites that's right and they both killed off millions of people and because socialism whether it's the marxist version or the national socialist version of germany is inherently uh it's just, it goes against the the way god created humans yep and so inherently it's going to create a situation where you have less it, it can all it can do is create uniform poverty. Yep. Well, so when you create socialism, then you end up with a few people that are self motivated enough to go out there and work and produce the the goods, but then everybody else is a drag. Mm-hmm. And so once they get rid of God's transcendent moral law, they get rid of the ideas of life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness, and they get the Volkish idea of the folk good of the Germanic tribe. Well, then you kill off everybody who's not producing because that's the only way you could uh, create your prosperous nation. Right. So rather than going and making it, helping everybody be prosperous so we can all raise together, you know, they instead create a situation where the the supplies become more and more and more and more scarce, and for the good of the community, you then have to kill the dead weight. Well, right. And so I, you know, admittedly, liberal socialist type thinkers in America are not advocating other than well they got abortion already so yeah and there was some talk on this health care thing about what they're going to do with all these old people 
but they don't want to go there. And so I, I don't think anybody's advocating that yet, but that's where it led in the past. Right. It, 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 when you think of it this way, it, the way to look at it is is that um, the, 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 my uh, mentor, Dr. Rosenblatt, said that one, it, think of these things as a journey on a train track. And that there's there's different tracks that you can go on, but once you throw particular switches, you, there you go. then what happens is is that it'll change your destination automatically. Exactly. And, so and, uh, what we're saying on this radio show is that what we must have as a baseline, bottom line, is a transcendent God who reveals moral truth. Yep. Who has spoken, whose words do not change. Who's, the meaning of whose words aren't determined by the reader, but determined by the, the the Lord who inspired the authors who wrote them, and that if we take those ideas of a transcendent God, man created in God's image, rationality is valid, words have meaning, and even though we're sinners and we need redemption and forgiveness, we never invalidate the idea that moral law is valid right oh and that the individual is important because each individual was created in the image of god and has inherent right. dignity therefore as a result of it and rights yeah so we have reason to preserve human life uh those ideas are being attacked in our academic world and in our churches yeah theologically and philosophically where our politicians don't believe them anymore either yep and so where is this going well, all, I don't know what we can do, Chris. We need to pray. We need to preach the gospel. But I don't like the tracks we're on. No, I, I don't like the tracks we're on either because I know where these tracks where where these tracks go to, and exactly. you know, and the urgency here is to preach the gospel, to call men and women to repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name, yeah. and, and to basically show them the evil and wickedness of this type of thinking because this type of thinking it's an idolatrous false religion that exalts itself against the truth of god absolutely and uh, it's well known that part of the groundwork in germany that led to fascism was an attack against the bible from several different ways yep you know the higher critical analysis uh the demythologizing the bible yeah blind leap of faith, you can't really know what it means, but you just take a blind leap. The, the deconstruction, as we're talking about, all of this mitigated against the Bible that actually tells us something. Yep, that's right. And you know what's funny is if you read Romans chapter 1, Romans chapter 1 describes a, a process of getting of, of, of deeper and deeper and worse and worse sin. Yeah, degradation. And it all starts with rejecting the knowledge of God, right? Yeah, who suppress the suppress the knowledge of true of God through through their unrighteousness. Yep, and it all leads to degradation. And uh, we're on that path. It's obvious. We can see it out there. Uh, you know what? You know, what do we need? Well, what we need, if this is going to turn around, is churches. Uh, and I'm not talking about this denomination or that one, all churches need to be proclaiming the whole counsel of God. And the, right. the Word of God needs to be taught to the people so that they understand what God has said. Yep. And we need to preach the gospel, and we need to start training our children in the truth so that when they get, unfortunately, when they go off to college, they're going to be bombarded by these ideas that we're warning about. Right. 
And if we don't get them prepared before they head off to college, I don't know what's going to happen to them. Well, yeah, you have to prepare your children. It not Expose them to this stuff and teach them how to outthink it. I mean, it can be outthunk. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Absolutely. You know, you... I, I've been advocating that passionately. I was out in Portland, Maine, speaking at a conference on emergent, and I passionately said, we cannot turn an entire generation over this stuff. Nope. And the reality is, is that at the moment, you know, the critical mass, I think, is at a tipping point in the negative direction. But the thing is, is that God has done greater things with less people. So, <laughs> That's a good note, Chris. Yeah. Should end on it. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, 12 guys, 12 guys preached the gospel and they toppled the, the Roman Empire within a few hundred years. You know, so preach the yeah, gospel. But, uh, yeah, we don't want to just be totally discouraged and God has his remnant and probably that's who's listening to your radio show so we want to encourage you in uh, standing up for the truth and uh, I know we're a little worried this is going to turn into a nerd fest yeah. or not. <laughs> but, you know uh, somebody the other day said well your book is at such a high academic level not everybody can read it I said listen I understand that that was the risk I took writing it. Yep. But but if you don't deal with these guys at their own level with their own terms, you haven't dealt with it. Yeah, that exactly. I I I got a little bit of criticism, you know, from my lecture on uh, on Sunday that it was a little bit uh hard to follow and difficult to understand and I and I I no apologies. I basically said I, I you have to understand this thing. If you don't deal with it, you don't understand it, and you can't refute it, and you can't preach against it, and you can't yeah, call people so to repent. There's, there's no dumbed-down, uh, simple, you know, Cliff Belts version of this. We have to deal with it for what it is. Yeah, that's right. If you don't understand what we're talking about, turn off the television and start reading. <laughs> <laughs> well, you better understand it, because while you're sitting there saying, well, that's all too dense, some professor has got your kid in his class yep. indoctrinating him into all this stuff. And yeah. you're, you're losing your own son or your own daughter. Or worse, you got you got your next pastor who's been been brought up in all this stuff, and he's going to come in and completely kill your church yep. with this stuff, and you're going to be powerless to stop him. You won't even know what he's doing or why he's doing it. Yeah, yeah you won't even know what hit you. So, so. we're not apologizing for, for some reason, uh, Chris, it seems like the two of us got into this battle, and so I'm willing to follow it through as the Lord gives me strength, and I know you are too. Yeah, hey, listen, as long what's the worst thing that can happen? They can kill me. Who cares? I mean, that's not the worst thing that can happen to me. So, Yeah, yeah that's true. That's yeah. not the worst. It's still legal to preach the gospel here in the United States, and it's still legal to do it, so I'm going to keep doing it. And when they make it illegal, guess what? I'll still keep doing it. So Everybody I know, I said that. Jan Markell asked me that. Once and I said, "What are you going to do if the some you know national law says you can't preach the gospel?" I said, "I'm going to keep preaching." And she says, "Everybody I've asked has said the same thing." Yeah, yeah. I don't think that they can stop out the the gospel. Nope. You know, if I have to do it underground, I'll do it underground. If I have to do it in a cave, I'll do it in a cave. Well, there were some people that lost their lives in Germany because they wouldn't give up the gospel. That's right. So, and uh, to be found worthy to suffer shame for the name of Christ. <laughs> I'll take that any day. Well, dear listeners, the fact is, the gospel's true. Deconstruction's a lie. The meaning of the gospel is determined by God who gave us the gospel. It's not the personal work of Christ. And I don't care how many people want to deny the individual, deny individual salvation, 
uh, denied meeting a text or what have you. The gospel is still true, and if we preach it, God will use it to save the lost. That's right. And preaching the gospel and individual salvation does not undermine this idea that we are a global community. Those who would say that it does, they're preaching fascism, not the Absolutely. truth. Absolutely. Yeah, the, the church has always been a global community. It, it was, we've got in theology the concept of the invisible church, uh-huh. the church militant. And so we're joined together with people all around the world that we don't even know. And when we do meet them, we know immediately that we're part and parcel of the same body of Christ. Right on. Well, Bob, thank you for coming on the program and talking about this complicated uh, matter with me and sticking your neck out on the chopping block and speaking the truth about what this thing really is. Well, thank you, too, Chris. I, I want... Uh, uh, it looks like you're probably going to become more of an expert on this than I'll ever be, but I appreciate you pointing me in this direction here. <laughs> Thank you, Bob. Yeah, thanks, Chris. Lord's blessings to you. God bless you. All right, bye-bye. All right, that's a lot to um, ponder, a lot to consider. That's a lot to bite off and chew. If you don't understand everything we said, that's okay. Get the book. You can find it at fightingforthefaith.com as well as piratechristianradio.com. It's right there on the homepage for both of those websites. If you're not sure, you, you still not sure, go back and listen to the program again and pass this information on. Fascism is back. It's alive and well, and it has been for a long time. It goes under the name of postmodernity today, but it's the same thing. It's Martin Heidegger's philosophy and deconstruction for a whole new generation. But this is a philosophy that attacks the transcendent, replaces it with the eminent, attacks the transcendent truths of God, truths that are binding to all human beings everywhere, and replaces it with truth that is only understood in conversation within a community. It attacks, it attacks, absolutely attacks the individual and replaces it with community. It is a false epistemology, it is a false philosophy, and its consequences are beyond tragic. Its consequences, when the track that we're on, where this leads, is really, really bad. By undercutting and removing God's moral transcendent laws, you unleash humanity's sinful nature and Really bad things happen when that happens. That's how critical it is that you understand what this thing is and you speak the truth boldly against it. All right. Need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon your generous gifts and contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you as well as to the world. You can support us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you click on the join our crew, you're automatically signing up to contribute a mere $6.95 every month to Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. Real important because once we get to 1,000 listeners, we can pay our bills every month. We're better than 70% of the way there. Still need, If you haven't done so, please do so. If you'd like to specify the amount that you'd like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the, the donate button or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right, what'd you think? You can send me emails. You can say I'm wrong. But if, you, if you're going to say that I'm wrong, that I, this can't possibly be fascism, then you don't know what you're talking about.
you don't understand what it is, where it, what it came from, what it believed, what it taught. If you think fascism is just about you know, hating Jews and being uh, racial or whatever, you don't understand it at all. Yeah. Email me. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. Amen.